12, 13, and 14 over these three weeks. Uh, and we've taken those one week at a time, one chapter at a time. And so today we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And over the past two weeks, we've had in chapter 12 something of an overview of the gifts of the Spirit and an introduction to the idea that God gives gifts, all kinds of gifts, gifts of uh, kind of supernatural gifts that we might think about, like prophecy and tongues or healings or miracles, but also much more normal kinds of gifts like administration or helps or hospitality or generosity or faith. And God gives these gifts to his people that they would use them for the common good. And in chapter 12, Paul uses this picture of a body to illustrate the church and to really emphasize the fact that God has put us together as his people, each of us different, each of us gifted by him differently for the strength and health and well-being of one another, that those who are particularly strong in one type of gift, maybe hospitality, can't say to the people who are, have a teaching gift, oh, we don't need you. As Paul says, you know, where would we be if the eye said, I don't need you ears, or if the hand said, I don't need you feet. And this idea that we need one another. We need each other to play the part that God has gifted us to play in this local church community and in every church community around the globe for the church to be healthy and strong and to grow to maturity. And so that's what we looked at in chapter 12. And then we moved in chapter 13, and Paul gave this incredible teaching on the subject of love. And we said, didn't we, as we read them, these verses often get read at weddings. Love is patient, love is kind, it's not easily angered, it doesn't boast, it keeps no record of wrongs. But actually, those weren't words initially written into the context of a marriage relationship. They were words written to the church about how we use our gifts and how we view one another and how we treat one another in the use of our gifts. And the idea was that actually, we can take the gifts God's given us and we could use them selfishly. We could use them to make ourselves look good, to build profile or prestige for ourselves. We could use them to achieve our own ends. And when we do that, it causes damage and dysfunction in the body. It causes harm and hurt to ourselves and to those around us. But God's word is clear. That's not the way we're supposed to use them. We're supposed to use them in love. And we understand love as God defines it rather than as we do. And we looked last week at the most perfect and whole picture of love being in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that when we understand and receive his love, it frees us to use the gifts God's given us for the good of others. Because we're secure in his love. We have nothing to prove. Nothing to do in order to make ourselves acceptable. But he has done everything necessary. And out of that place of security and that place of knowing that we are loved by him, we can freely use the gifts he's given us, not to our own ends, but to bless and serve others. And so that's where we've got up to over the last couple of weeks. And now as we come to the end of this 
three-part series, we get to chapter 14, where Paul gives some very, very practical instruction on the use of two gifts in particular. And before we get into it, we need to establish up front a principle that we use when reading the New Testament, particularly when reading instructions to people about conduct. Because Paul is going to give specific practical instructions to the church. And so we need to know what we do with them. Our rule of thumb is this. Unless it is clear from Scripture that it does not apply to us, then we assume it does. Okay? So when you read the New Testament, when there's an instruction to the church, to Christians, to God's people, unless it is clear from the context or from Scripture itself that that does not apply to us, then we assume it does and we follow it as God's word to us. So when Paul tells the Corinthians to eagerly desire the gifts, we assume that we're also to do that because there is nothing in Scripture to indicate that that is not an instruction to us today. Nothing in Scripture to indicate that. But when Jesus sends the 72 and tells them not to take any money or sandals with them, we don't take that to mean that when we go on mission, we go barefoot and penniless. We, we don't kind of take that instruction verbatim and go, well, there's no sandals, no shoes, barefoot, and whatever you do, you don't take any money with you, because we don't see that as the normal pattern elsewhere in Scripture. But we do see the principle he was teaching them about trusting God to provide. And so we seek to apply that principle faithfully in our lives today. Does that make sense, how we approach Scripture? Yeah? Because we're going to need that today through this passage. This is a good deal more kind of nuts and bolts and practical than the last couple of weeks have been. So let's read together from 14 verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Up. But the one who prophesies want you all to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, already, there may be some of you who are going, prophecy? Tongues? What's that? And so before we get any further, we need to quickly make sure we're clear on what Paul is addressing or speaking about when he uses those two words, because they're going to be the focus of a large amount of this chapter. So firstly, prophecy. Prophecy, as a, this is a, a kind of simple definition. We could do a deep dive on this, but this will suffice for today, is a word or message from God spoken through a member of his body, inspired by his Holy Spirit, and given to build up the rest of the body. 
Okay? So when Paul speaks about prophecy in this chapter, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about God, by his Spirit, inspiring one of his people to say something for the encouragement, building up, or instruction of the rest of the church. A bit like Jenny did halfway through worship, when she said, I just feel like God wants to speak to someone here who identifies with that sense of being brokenhearted. And then she proceeded to bring an encouragement from that. Now, we also know from Scripture, and even from Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians, that when we speak like that, that isn't like, thus saith the Lord, this is the infallible word of God. It's not on a level with Scripture. In fact, Paul says that we prophesy in part. It's partial. It's imperfect. It's fallible. And it's always submitted to Scripture. So when someone brings something that they feel God is saying this for the good of the church or for the upbuilding and encouragement of others, then the first thing we have to do is say, does it accord with what we find in God's Word? Does it line up with Scripture? Does it back up and reinforce what we find in here? Because if it doesn't, then we can straight away chuck it out and go, I'm sorry, that's not, that's not prophecy. That's not a word from God. We're not interested. And actually, we're supposed to do that in the church. Did you know that? Paul's going to come a bit later to talk about weighing prophecy or testing prophecy. That's what we're supposed to do. Is When we hear someone bring something like Jenny did, to say, does that Line up with what we find in here, because if it doesn't, then we're not interested. Good. Prophecy. Some people w- would argue or contest today that preaching is prophecy. Um, and that's partly to do with uh, the, the Greek word used often in the New Testament for prophecy, of forthtelling or speaking forth good news. And so people say, when you explain Scripture, when you preach and proclaim Scripture, that's, that's prophecy. And I would say preaching can certainly and does certainly contain aspects of what the Bible would speak about as prophecy. It should do. And I trust it does, actually, on Sundays when I pray and prepare. I trust that there's things that I will say that are not just my good ideas, but are prompted and inspired by the Spirit of God for your building up and your encouragement and your strengthening. But the New Testament itself clearly distinguishes between teaching and preaching and prophecy. So I don't think we have permission to just smash them together in a way the Bible doesn't. That would do a disservice to God's Word, and we really don't want to do that. Prophecy, good. How about tongues? Well, tongues kind of does what it says on the tin. It's, it's the gift or ability to speak in languages. An ability given by God to speak in a language without having invested the time or energy to learn that language. And we found back in chapter 13, verse 1, actually, Paul begins by talking about, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels. He kind of brings these two things, and we find actually in Scripture both things being the case. So in Acts, Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the people of God, they spontaneously begin speaking in other languages that they haven't learned. They have an ability given by God to do that. 
they are clearly, in that instance, the tongues of men, but tongues that they didn't know or hadn't learned. Because the crowds gathered there heard them speaking each in their own language. People from all different countries and nationalities who were gathered in Jerusalem for this festival heard the disciples proclaiming good news about God in their own languages, the tongues of men. And this is borne out through church history too. I've been in meetings where this has been the case, where someone has prayed out in what to them is just a a prayer language that God has given them that they would use. They don't, wouldn't be able to tell you exactly word for word what they're saying, and then someone else has brought an interpretation, but not just said, I, I know what they've said. They've come forward and said, I know what they've just said because they were speaking in dot, dot, dot language, and that's where I grew up, or that's the tribe I was born into, or we had by a, a university in Plymouth who was a really keen linguist and he'd visited lots of different countries and he spoke, I mean, he's absolute genius. He spoke several, I mean, beyond 10 languages. Staggering guy, incredibly smart, gifted with languages. Um, but he, he'd never been in a church where um, people would speak in tongues. As we find in the New Testament, and we had a meeting with some of our students, and he was very skeptical about it. And one lady in the church prayed out in a tongue, and his face lit up. He said, that is this language, and I've been learning it. And what you just said is amazing. We find that. But also, it's not limited to the tongues of men. Sometimes this gift as far as we can tell, is no identifiable human language, but God, by his Spirit, gives someone the ability to speak it. And we also believe, as we'll see later in this chapter, the ability to interpret that, to to say, this is what's just been said. And tongues is often used, and we'll look at how Paul talks about being used in the corporate church, but often used individually in prayer and worship. It's it's an amazing ability to express our heart response to the God in prayer. So Paul, about these two gifts, then begins by saying, pursue love. He references back to what he's just taught them in chapter 13. Don't forget, before we get any further... This should be motivated by love. Love is the foundation. It's against that backdrop, against a backdrop of having received and understood the love of God that frees us to love others that we should earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And this is where Paul's in chapter 12, given us this image of body and said no one's more important than the other, none of the gifts are more important than the other, they're all given by God, all for the good, like don't you think there's a hierarchy or that you're going to be better thought of if you prophesy, you're more spiritual because you speak in tongues than someone who has a gift of hospitality, that's nonsense. But then here, he all of a sudden says, eagerly desire the gifts, especially that you might prophesy. And you think, hang on. Paul, I thought they were all equal. (laughs) And they are. 
But he focuses on two here and contrasts them, tongues and prophecy, and says, especially desire prophecy. And then he qualifies it and he says, for or because tongues, what does he say here? One who speaks in tongues speaks not to men but to God. No one understands him. He utters mysteries in the spirit. Paul's point in these verses is that unless it's interpreted when someone speaks in tongues, the only person who benefits from it is the individual who's speaking in that moment. And since the gifts were given to build up the body, then Paul says, if, if you're going to desire one, <laughs> please, desire prophecy. Because then your contribution in the gathered church will have a greater impact because it builds up the body. Clearly, it's for the good of others. Now, we read in verse 5, he says this, Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Now, what Paul doesn't say is that all of you can speak in tongues, and all of you will prophesy. And I've heard people read this verse and say, like when Paul says, I want all of you to do it, it's like he's instructing them. You, you should all do this. It, that's not what he's saying. He's already been very clear. Remember that whole thing about the instruction? We need to look at the rest of Scripture and how that informs what we've just read. He's already said. Let's go back. Chapter 12. What does he say? He says, do all. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess the gift of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret. The, it's these rhetorical questions to which the answer is no. Not everybody does. And not everybody should expect to because it's God who gifts. It's his choice who he gifts with what. He's not saying everyone can or will. But he is saying we should desire tongues and we should even more so desire prophecy. And Paul expands on it, particularly focuses now on the, the gift of tongues and the use of it. And against the backdrop of love that we had together last week, Paul takes aim at the use of these gifts selfishly and he uses tongues to perfectly illustrate his point. So we read from verse 6, he says this, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you? Unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves... If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what's said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Paul says in these verses, effectively, when you're with others and you speak in tongues, 
if people don't understand what you've just said, what use is it to them? It's, it's literally useless to them. That's what he says. In fact, he goes slightly further to say that it alienates them. It, it makes you foreigners to one another. He says, can anyone who you've put in the position of an outsider to you by speaking in a language they don't understand join you in worship by agreeing or saying amen to what you've just prayed or sung out? No, because they don't understand it. It's, it's useless to them. This gift that should be for the building up of the body should be used in love for the building up of others. If you just babble on in tongues or sing out in tongues and no one understands what you said and there's no interpretation to benefit them, then actually, rather than doing good, rather than strengthening and encouraging them so that they might say amen and join you in your worship instead, you create separation between yourself and them. You alienate them from you. You make a foreigner or an outsider of them. He carries in verse 12 to say... You're eager for manifestations of the Spirit. Strive to excel in building up the church. And he carries on. Therefore, when there's a therefore in the Bible, we've said this lots, haven't we? You have to ask what it's there for. Yeah? If there's a therefore, you have to ask what it's there for. It's referring back to what he's just said. One who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? I think you may be giving thanks well enough, but another person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. I was like, yes, desire tongues. Speak in tongues. I mean, he says, doesn't he? He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Paul's like saying, when I pray to God, when I get alone, my own time with God, more than the lot of you. But when I'm with you, I would rather speak five words that you understand and that will strengthen and encourage you than 10,000 in tongues that are uninterpreted, that do nothing for you. Because Paul understands that God has given the gifts for the strengthening of the body, not for the separation and alienation. So if you're going to pray in tongues, Paul says, this is our first bit of really practical nuts and bolts when we get together as a church. It's like if you're going to pray in tongues, if the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he might interpret. If you're going to pray out or sing out in tongues when we gather, then Paul says you need to be ready to interpret what you've said. 
pray in tongues, your spirit, but pray also with your mind. Be ready to pray out what you've prayed in tongues that people would understand and be able to say amen. Otherwise, this is paraphrasing what he says from verse 16, this is otherwise you might be having a lovely time worshipping God on your own with all these people stood near you, but you make everyone else there an outsider to you in that moment because they don't know what you're saying. When you gather, remember you're together. It isn't about you and your enjoyment, primarily. You're there, and you've been gifted by God for the good of others, so use your gifts in love for the good of others. You're with me so far on use of the gift of tongues. Understand? Good. Because Paul isn't done with us yet. We're going to read on. From verse 20, he says this. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, they will, not, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. We're going to dig into that in a minute, but I just, guys, don't we want that? The last thing Paul says, that people who are currently far off from God, who are living lives in, in rejection of him and rebellion against him, would come into our meetings and be so aware of the presence of God amongst us that they go, oh, they fall on their face and worship him and declare God is really among you. I long for that. Let's just unpick what Paul says from 20 through to 25 because it's probably the most kind of tricky to understand bit because at first glance, Paul seems to contradict himself. Yeah, it's like in the first half of it, it sounds like he's saying that tongues is a sign for unbelievers and prophecy is a sign for believers and then the next bit he appears to say the opposite that tongues makes no sense to unbelievers and isn't a sign for them it's for believers but prophecy is a sign for unbelievers because they'll come in and be aware of God's presence as the secrets of their heart are exposed and they come to worship him it's like Paul <laughs> like did you change your mind in those couple of verses what happened well he didn't change his mind. We just need to unpick it a bit. The second half is the, the plain reading. It aligns with the rest of Paul's teaching about prophecy and tongues and what we find in the rest of the New Testament. So what does he mean then about tongues being a sign for unbelievers? Well, in verse 21, Paul quotes from Isaiah, an Old Testament prophet, 
who was speaking as God's mouthpiece to God's people. And he was speaking, we read it in Isaiah 28, it's a passage about God's judgment over his people who have rebelled against him and who will not listen to his prophet, who will not listen to his word. And God is saying because of their sin, they will be ruled over by foreigners in languages that they don't understand, that they'll be taken into exile, and they'll be ruled over by people whose language they don't understand. And then we see this in history with the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and then the Romans. And for God's people, not understanding those around them was a sign to them of God's judgment that the unbelievers in that context were, were God's people, actually, who, who didn't understand what was being said around them as a sign of God's judgment. So when Paul says tongues are a sign for unbelievers and ties it to that Isaiah passage, what he's saying is that they're a sign of judgment or separation from God for God's people. Being spoken to in languages you don't understand alienates you from the speaker, doesn't it? Have you been in a foreign country where you have no idea what's being said? Like, I'm terrible with languages. Like, just trying to do basic food shopping in another country terrifies me. Because I have no idea what's going on. And, like, I'm terrible at languages, but given a little bit of time, I can be not so bad at accents. So then I can learn one or two words and sound like I should know what I'm talking about, which is the worst thing imaginable, because then people start talking to you as though you do know what you're talking about, and then you're really lost. It alienates you from the speaker when you are being spoken to in languages you don't understand. And in the church, if you don't understand what's going on or what's being said it gives a sense of alienation from God as you're alienated from his people. In contrast to prophecy, which emphasizes the nearness of God and God speaking to his people in a way that they understand, if everyone speaks in a way that you don't understand, it makes you feel alien from them and alien from God distant from him. Paul's reasoning in these verses is that by speaking in uninterpreted tongues, the Corinthians were in a way pronouncing judgment on one another, making people feel further away from God and further away from his people. And Paul wants to be very clear. That's not okay. That's not okay. Paul doesn't want Christians to get together and the tongue speakers to babble away without interpretation. I know some of us will have been in meetings where, where that's happened, even where people have been encouraged to just pray out or sing out in tongues all simultaneously. And, and I think Paul would have very strong words for us in those moments. Actually, I think that's a large part of what he's getting at in 14, is that when, when you do that to anyone who doesn't have that gift, who's amongst you, 
And to anyone who can't, even to one another who can speak in tongues, if you can't interpret what's being said, in that moment, instead of that being an expression of unity, what actually happens is that you emphasize separation. You alienate one another. And in a strange way, you pronounce a kind of judgment on one another, of separation from God's people, and consequently separation from God. And, and then Paul says, almost as if that weren't enough, <laughs> non-Christians will also come into the meeting and think you're all completely crazy, which then further alienates them from God. Instead of speaking to them something that they'll understand that they might be drawn close, instead they just hear, wow, this is Fruit Loops, and they're turned off and they're alienated and they feel a greater sense of distance than they did before. But prophecy can unlock things. And that's why Paul says, if you're going to desire one, like, go for this one, guys. It can open the eyes of people to repent and worship God and the church. History is filled with examples of this kind of thing happening. Even from people who would actually say they, they felt that the gift of prophecy stopped with the apostles. Remember we looked in chapter 12 and we talked about, actually no, it was last week in chapter 13, where Paul says, when the perfect comes, these things are going to cease. And some people would argue, well, once the canon of Scripture is delivered, this is God's perfect word, therefore the spiritual gifts have ceased today. And we said, actually, I, I don't think that's the case. I think perfection coming is when Christ returns. And we think that from the context where Paul continues to talk about, actually then, you know, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. I don't know about you, but I'm not seeing him face to face yet. That happens when he returns. And so I believe until the day Christ returns, God will continue to pour out these gifts on his church for the building up and strengthening of his people. But even people who wouldn't necessarily say that they thought the gifts of the Spirit were for today may have experienced it. So one of my favorite preachers from history, a man called C.H. Spurgeon, he would have argued against the charismatic gifts being still alive today. But listen to this. This is from a, a biography about his life. It's a quote of someone who went to a service when he was preaching. It says, Mr. Spurgeon looked at me as if he knew me. And in the middle of his sermon, he pointed to me and told the congregation that I was a shoemaker and that I kept my shop open on Sundays. And I did, sir. I should not have minded that, but he also said that I took ninepence the Sunday before and that there was fourpence profit out of it. I did take ninepence. And fourpence was just the profit. But how he should know that, I could not tell. Then it struck me that it was God who had spoken to my soul through him. And so I shut up my shop the next Sunday. At first I was afraid to go and hear him again, lest he should tell all the people more about me. But afterwards I went and the Lord met with me and saved my soul. I think that's exactly what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 14 when he talks about unbelievers coming into a church meeting and the church prophesying and the secrets of their heart being laid bare and them coming to repentance and faith. 
Charles Spurgeon then adds this comment. He says, I could tell as many as a dozen similar cases in which I pointed at somebody in the hall without having the slightest knowledge of the person or any idea that what I said was correct, except that I was moved by the Spirit to say it. I, I think that's prophecy. And God uses it for our good and for his glory. So spiritual gifts are given to strengthen the church but also to reveal the presence of God to non-Christians too. And so having established these principles and given us a few practical applications, Paul now drills down in the last few verses to some really nuts and bolts application on how we should use these two gifts when we come together. So we read from, chap- from verse 26, he says this, about orderly worship. What then, brothers... When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Paul harks back to this body imagery and to what he taught in chapter 12. Guys, when you come together, this isn't a spectator sport. We said that a couple of weeks back, right? When we gather as God's people to worship... God's gifted you to play your part. And that might be bringing some kind of word. It might be using other practical gifts that he's given you. But when we gather, each one has something that God has given them for the common good. Let each be done. Let all things be done for building up or the common good. It's our motivation. Are we good on that? Yes? Yes? Okay. Paul continues, we need to remember what we said at the start, okay? If there's, a, if there's a clear reason from the text to say it doesn't apply to us, that's fine, but unless there is, then we assume that it applies to us. We continue, verse 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only one or two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and God. Paul says, if you have the gift of tongues, there's no reason not to use it when the church gather. But you shouldn't all just go for it. One or two or three at most should bring but only if there's someone to interpret. Which means if you're going to pray out in tongues when we gather, then then Paul's instruction is that that you need to pray that you could interpret what you are going to bring in tongues. And if you you can't do that, you need to be confident that someone else is going to be able to. Otherwise, you need to keep quiet. That's what he says. They should stay silent in the gathering and speak to himself and God. He doesn't say don't use tongues. He says just when you use it, make sure other people are going to be built up and can say a hearty amen to what you bring. It's the purpose of the gift in the corporate setting. 
then he continues from verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one. That's the two or three, incidentally, not everyone, the, the two or three that he's just aforementioned. You can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. It's like, guys, like, <laughs> you could do just as bad with prophecy as with tongues. You all decide to shout out at the same time over the top of one another. And if it's too much, then people can't process what's been brought anyway. So two or three at a time at most, and let the church weigh what's been brought. Consider, does this line up with scripture? What's God saying to us? Is this consistent with his word? And how do we respond to this? And if someone else begins to bring something, then you keep your mouth closed. (laughs) Don't talk over the top of them. It's pretty simple stuff. But it's so important. When he says the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, what he's saying is exercise self-control. <laughs> like when you prophesy, you're not somehow like taken hold of by the Spirit of God that you just can't help what comes out of your mouth and it's like, oh, it's out there and there's nothing I could do about it. He's trying to stop people making a super spiritual argument for disregarding what he's just told them about orderly worship and kind of shouting out over the top of the others and then being, oh, I just couldn't help it. The Spirit of God was so on me, I just had to say it. It's like, no, you didn't. You just, (laughs) you can wait and exercise self-control and in the right way at the right time, bring what God's given you for the building up of the church. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And then lastly, Paul has one final bit of instruction in this body of teaching. I'm going to read it, and then we'll dig into it. He says this from halfway through verse 33. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, then let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things that I am writing to you are a command from the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Paul saves like the very most awkward bit to the end and you kind of read it and it sticks in your throat because you're like ah Paul like what (laughs) what are you saying what is this how does this apply well firstly I need to say we've got to remember what we said right at the start okay about how we read and apply scripture the same rules apply just because on the surface, something is culturally confrontational or awkward or puts us in a position that if we were to obey it, we would 
feel very awkward culturally, that doesn't mean we just get to disregard it. We have to be consistent in the way we read and apply scripture. So that's that up front. And there is nothing actually here that says, I want you to just, I need you to hear this, I want you to hold your judgment on what I'm going to say until I've finished, because it may sound like I'm saying every single woman in this room needs to keep their mouths closed every time we gather. I'm going to give you the outcome before we get that. I'm not saying that, and I don't think for a second that Paul is saying that either. Okay? So just suspend judgment and don't get too offended at me or Scripture yet. There is nothing here that says this was just for them there then. There's nothing in this passage that that says that. In fact, actually, with the opening statement to this small section where Paul says, as in all the churches of the saints, and midway through appealing to the law, appealing to the Old Testament, Paul actually makes it very clear it wasn't just for them there and then. Because he says this is the case in all the churches. And, And we find this in the law. So he broadens it out. So we can't, that means we can't just ignore it or dismiss it. We have to seek to understand what it means and how it applies to us today. The first thing then, we look at what Paul said in the surrounding chapters and in this letter that might help us understand it. That's how we interpret scripture. We, we look at what else is said in the immediate context and see how that helps us. And then we look at what else is said in the rest of scripture and see how that helps us. So we just zoom out slightly into the more immediate context. We say, well, Paul categorically cannot be making a blanket ban on women speaking in the church because that would contradict what he has already taught and what we clearly know elsewhere from scripture. In fact, he has already in this same letter, just a couple of chapters before this, set the expectation that women will prophesy because he's given some instructions on how they should do that specifically address the women. So there's an expectation that women are going to speak out, that they're going to prophesy. So he can't be saying that. And he's included them clearly in his instructions to desire the gifts. Nothing in his instructions to the church to desire the gifts is focused in any way at men. It's always at both sexes. So it would make no sense if they were forbidden from speaking in church because he's told them to desire all these gifts and told them specifically some stuff about them prophesying and they went, ah, but you can't open your mouth. That just wouldn't make any sense at all. He, He isn't doing that. We also need to remember that he's just said that under certain circumstances, tongue speakers and prophets should stay silent in church. He uses the same word, doesn't he? He says, tongue speakers, if you haven't got an interpretation, stay silent. Prophets, if someone else is speaking, don't shout over the top, stay silent. In the immediate context, he's given others instructions to stay silent too. So he is prohibiting something, but it isn't women speaking in church. And we do need to pay attention to it because there's nothing from the context that says this isn't a command for us also. So what is he actually teaching and why? We don't have time for a deep dive now. And I think there are two p- 
plausible and well-respected interpretations in the evangelical and charismatic church today, in which we would count ourselves. And the first is this, something that given the context and the immediate context of this being teaching about the weighing of prophecy, that Paul is saying that women should not play a part in the weighing of prophecy when the church is gathered. And they would contend for that view, saying that a prophetic word that was brought before the whole church should be weighed by the church elders. So it's like a governmental authority in the church. So the church elders should weigh a prophetic word that is brought before the whole church. And since the New Testament norm was that elders were men, that would preclude women from participating in the public weighing of prophecy. And I can see how people get that, how people argue for that. And I, I think elders, as the spiritual leaders responsible for doctrine in the church, tasked by God as shepherds to care for the church, to, to guard the flock, have a clear and important role in weighing prophecy, in assessing, does it line up with what we find in here? And, and stopping someone or bringing correction if it doesn't. That, that is something the elders should be doing in a church. But I also think there are problems with this view, not least that if Paul's intention in this was to say only elders should weigh prophecy, it would make a good deal more sense for him to say uh, only the elders should weigh prophecy. Do you see what I mean? It would be really odd for him to say women shouldn't do something as a way of saying that only a specific group of men should do something. It just doesn't make any sense. The second view, which I think is, in my reading and my understanding, I think is the correct one, is that some women in Corinth were in the habit of interrupting to ask questions when their husbands or others were prophesying in church. Culturally, it was not expected or normal that women would be in an environment where they were learning, actually, or in a context where they were open to these things. But in the church, they were. They were encouraged to be there and to learn and to participate, to play an active role, to use the gifts God had given them for the strengthening of the church. But some of them were calling out or talking over people being disruptive in their eagerness to learn they were kind of asking shouting out questions being disruptive and disrespectful and that leads to disorder in the church which paul has spoken so clearly against in the last couple of chapters it won't have that kind of behavior in the church and so he addresses these women and in the same way he says to tongue speakers without an interpretation, you need to be quiet. He says, it's like, please don't just shout out your questions. It's really unhelpful. Like, in that moment, be quiet. But ask, learn later. Ask the question later in the right context. If they have a question or want to seek clarification, he says they should talk to their husbands later at home. Don't don't ask him when he's trying to say something in the meeting if that's what's happening so 
I think that's what Paul's teaching here from my understanding of the historical context in Corinth and from what I can read of scholars and how they handle this text. So I hope that that's not actually as controversial or hard to apply as you might have thought. So if someone brings something in church, don't just shout out and ask. It's not going to be helpful probably, but ask in the right context. And then Paul concludes with this final statement. He says this in verse 39 and 40. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. These two sentences is a brilliant summary of the rest of the chapter, but I think it's also a great encouragement to all of us. Whatever our background or experience or expectation is of the gifts of the Spirit when we gather to worship, I think these words from Paul are so helpful and a great place for us to land. Because some of us will feel when we read and and try to understand chapter 14 that the instructions Paul gives are, are somewhat stifling. Maybe some of us have been in contexts and environments where where we're used to encouraging everybody to just go for it in tongues. And the thought of of not doing that feels kind of restrictive, frustrating perhaps. Like we want to be able to go for it and love it. We've done it before and enjoyed it and it's just felt great. And the thought that Paul says, "But, but when you do that, that's actually counterproductive in terms of the way the gifts are designed to operate and in terms of the way God's body is designed to function together. If that's us, then we need to hear this appeal for godly order and intelligibility in worship. We need to hear Paul's emphasis on love as the foundation for these gifts. Others being the ones who we're seeking to serve with our gifts rather than ourselves and whether it feels good and we enjoy it. so that others would be drawn close and built up rather than pushed away. And other of us are very comfortable with the orderly. Like, we're very, that bit, when Paul says everything should be done decently and in order, we're like, amen, Paul. (laughs) And we need to hear his encouragement to eagerly desire the gifts. Maybe some of us find that a bit challenging. I think, I, just like, it sounds a bit freaky. Like, I'm not sure what I think about it. We need to hear Paul's charge to eagerly desire the gifts that they've been given for our good, for the building up and strengthening of his people. And so I want to encourage you, as Paul encouraged the church, eagerly desire the gifts. Use the gifts that he's given you, not for your own status or that people might look at you and think, wow, you're holy. But use them for the strengthening of others, for the good of others. Fan it into flame. I want to encourage more of you. Eagerly desire prophecy. 
doesn't mean God's definitely going to give you stuff to share. But I tell you what, if you eagerly desire and you ask him, you'd be surprised. And you know what? We're not going to hear it when you say something and automatically go, wow, thus saith the Lord. We've all got to do that then. We're going to weigh it like Paul instructs us to. We're going to test it against Scripture and say, yeah, does that line up? If it does, it's great. What an encouragement. And if it doesn't, then there's an opportunity for us to all learn, isn't there? Eagerly desire the gifts, all of them. But let it all be done in love. Just look around a minute. Guys, I know there's some people missing today. We've got some people on holiday and some people ill and some people on live stream. But if you're part of Foundation Church, we said this week one of this series, God's put us together. We're family. We're a body. He's united us with one another. And you have something to bring that he's given you. And I called out some of that week one, right? So we embarrassed a couple of people and talked about the gifts God's given them. Bob hasn't stopped blushing since. (laughs) But look around and consider, God, what have you given me that I could use for their good? What have you placed in me that I could use for their strengthening and encouragement. And maybe you might want to take Paul's advice and say, Lord, would you speak to me in some way when we gather that I might speak to them for their strengthening and encouragement? Would you earnestly desire prophecy? I want to encourage you to stand. We're going to come back to worship. Johnny and Sophie.